0: This episode of the American Farrier's Journal podcast is brought to you by Horselink. How many times has a client forgotten to pay you? Or there's the client who has forgotten their checkbook and will get around to mailing the check. How long do you have to wait for payments from your foot care clients? With the app Horselink, horse owners can pay all of their service providers efficiently from one place at any time trusting that their payment is securely processed and have easy access to an automatic service history for each horse. And because you as the farrier are the service provider, you can use HorseLink to create and send invoices in just a few taps and easily keep track of the payments that are completed and outstanding. Download the app for free in the Apple App Store, Google Play, or visit Horselink.com today. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast, I'm Jeremy McGovern. In this episode I catch up with farrier Travis Burns. I suppose it might be more accurate for me to say Travis slowed down long enough for me to talk with him. He serves as chief of farrier services at the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine where he's also an associate professor of practice in the equine podiatry service under Dr. Scott Pleasant. Travis also serves as the American Farriers Association president. In this episode, we talk about what's going on with the AFA, his unique vantage point of vet-farrier relationships, and we go over some of those twists and turns from throughout his career. But first, Travis will tell us how he started in horseshoe. way I always start off, so just tell us how you got into horses and then then what triggered your interest in farriery.
1: Yeah. So the way I got into horses was my uh, family member and uncle of mine, my dad's brother, actually ran a, a riding stable in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Western North Carolina. And there, I um, mean, again, I grew up and there was always 30 to 50 horses and we would ride them, take tourists out and just go on on trail rides. Um, and then my dad and two of my other uncles, um, they were responsible for trimming and shoeing those horses. And 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 for me, I was a little Uh, how do you say, I guess I was kind of hyper little, little bit of a rambunctious boy. So, so now I totally get it, but at the time I didn't. But, uh, when they were shooing the horses, they didn't really allow me to come into the barn or or be around. They, they tried to keep me away, which now makes perfect sense to me. But, (laughs) but at that point I was bothered naturally as a little kid, anything you tell them they can't do, or, or at least for me as a kid, told me I couldn't do it. That's all I thought about and wanted to do. Um, so I would, I would sneak around and, and watch and, and stuff. And, um. So that that was really kind of the kind of the start, and then they they realized that I was getting interested and, and wanted to do some, and and so it grew. They let me start pulling shoes and trimming feet and finishing feet, doing doing things like that. So um, slowly, um, I did more and more and more. Um, and then I had one uncle in particular, um, Timmy, who would uh, on rainy days when we couldn't take tourists out and stuff, uh, we would generally close and, and that was a, a time to get caught up on things. And one of those was always the shoeing. And so yeah, even when at a young age, you know, 14, 15 years old, he would sit there with me all day and watch me shoot horses, which was, was awesome. Um, so that was kind of the, kind of the start. And then from, from there, obviously my, my career is, has evolved from all those were just, you know, trail, trail horses we were just putting diamond toe and heel on them no forge no nothing just real real simple basic basic stuff and then I went to college I started out at the University of Tennessee and and uh, I can remember walking around the vet school campus and I saw a farrier who now I know was Dudley Hurst and got to watch him they were they were there making shoes and so that was the first time I saw a forge and a and a grinder and a welder being used for for horseshoeing and so again, to 18-year-old me, that was really, really cool. So that was my first uh, inclination or, or first insight into the fair world that there was more beyond just the, the trail type shoeing that I, I was doing. So from there, I went into uh farrier school in North Carolina and then worked with a bunch of farriers while I was in college at NC State or finished up college at NC State.
0: Yeah, let's go back to that, because I think it's important, the, the type of horses you first initially meet, and it's easy to think about Dudley and what he's doing and, and even the stuff you're doing now, but I, I have to imagine the amount of work and, and the frequency of seeing those horses, those trail riding horses, had a, had a huge impact on you.
1: Oh, it it did for sure. I mean, it it was fantastic. Like I said, they they just turned me loose. And so I I did those horses for years. And even when I was in college, I would still go home and and do all them. I mean, they would, you know, if a shoe fell off or something, they would keep up with them. But, you know, I would go home and knock them all out and three, four or five days. And so it was, it was awesome. I wish, you know, now when I get apprentices or or people that come to come to work with me, um, it becomes really apparent how nice it was for me to have all those guinea pigs to just do stuff to. And again, I mean, it's in an extremely controlled environment. Like if I, if I mess up, what's, I mean, my my dad, my uncle going to get mad at me, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Um, So I got to, got to make mistakes. I got to to try things and, and learn things. And, and again, with the way we rode them, you know, eight and 10 hours a day, I mean, we were replacing shoes every four or five weeks.
0: Yeah. And I I think Tennessee is one of those great programs and it's obviously still going on, but Dudley's not there anymore, but that's like the next level up. And did that really start triggering your interest in the therapeutic side?
1: It Kind of. So really, that was just uh, like one day and I was just walking by. So there on campus across the river is where the vet school sits from main campus. And, and I had taken a bus over to go to a lab like a learning opportunity. And I just happened to hear that noise. I mean, if you know what a hammer and an anvil sounds like, you can hear it from anywhere and any fair is going to go towards it. We're going to go figure out what's, what's going on. So it was just really just the one day, but I remember, but it was so much different than anything I'd been exposed to. I mean, I know it sounds super simplistic, but this was all before the internet and, and uh, social media and Facebook and, And all these ways now that that people are are sharing ideas and you're exposed to all the the shoes and the things on the market, you know, I I admit, it's hard for me to admit this, but even at that time while I was shooting horses that I didn't know about the American Fairs Journal, I was like totally isolated. I didn't really know anything. All I had was an NC tool catalog. Um, So we would get that every year and that was really cool. And then the horses I shod. That was it, so that day walking walking by him and and just stopping in and saying hello, you know then I mean I had to get on to a lab so it's not even like I could hang out there all day or or see what was going on, but that was enough for me to realize there was a lot more out there there was something else that I needed to see, and so that's what really sparked me to go go into uh, go to farrier school, um, but the therapeutic thing um, and and being at a university really got triggered for me at NC State. So while I was in undergrad there, um, I would volunteer at the, the vet school. And then after I graduated from uh, college, my first job was actually at the vet school. So I worked there every day in radiology. And uh, there they, they had a vet fair team at that time, Dr. Mansman and Kurt Von Mord. And they would, they would come to, to the campus in Raleigh and work two days a week And I had an awesome boss um, in radiology named Scarlett, and she would allow me on those days, if we weren't really busy, to hang out with them and watch. So even on the days that they weren't in the hospital, you know, I would pull shoes and do things for for surgery or or radiographs or whatever. But on those days, I got to watch them and see how they worked as a a team and the cases that they saw presented there. And, And that's really what started to really spark that interest for me and really was you know, very career shaping at the time. In the moment, you don't realize how important that moment is or, or that time. But that year was, was very impressionable on me. So I got to, to learn and see a lot with them. And then there was a, a surgeon there who is now retired, but Rich Redding was there and and he was awesome. You know, he spend extra time talking to me about cases, you know, and there was a resident there named Jim Nutt. And, and again, residents are, are awesome. they they're in the hospital all the time. They're super enthusiastic about learning and what they're doing. And, and so on cases that uh, would come in that would need stuff at a time in which Kurt and Dr. Mansman weren't there, you know, they had asked me to do, do little things. And, and that was really, really shaping for, for me and really started to spark that interest because it was, It was nice to be a part of a team. It was nice to be uh, with, I mean, I'll just say it, just nerdy people like myself that really want to know why for everything. You know, they're always looking to improve things. Uh, You know, they don't – won't put on a shoe without a specific – reason you know no modification without a specific reason like it just that that mindset um really fit very well with with me and so it was even even then i realized that whatever i don't even remember how old i was i guess 22 23 even then i realized that's where i wanted to do that type of work for the rest of my career
0: yeah, and that's such that incredible leap forward of complexity, and and as soon as you try to figure out one why, you just find out there's 15 other why's that you need to answer.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the and the problem solving part of it was was really interesting to me. And so, um, you know, I mean, even like if you take just a simple simple case like a simple quarter crack, you know, again, I mean, the principles to achieve are are obviously to fix whatever's causing the quarter crack and then stabilize the hoof capsule and, and limit its movement. But there's, looking now, there's probably ten, fifteen 15 different ways to do it. To me, that's really cool and, and really interesting to to try to make yourself well-rounded like that and, and think outside the box and, and get to experiment a bit.
0: Where did you go to horseshoeing school?
1: Um, actually, I went to horseshoeing school at the North Carolina School of Horseshoeing, not, uh, not with Mr. Jones, but with a guy. Uh, named Jerry Linker ran the school. So it was outside of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So, yeah, that's where, where I went. And it, it was a short – I went to a short, very short course. I was there really over a break between semesters okay. from my uh, my first semester at Tennessee to my first semester at NC State. I went during that break, and it was just I, – I can't remember the exact dates, but potentially December in first couple weeks of January so it was very very short and and at that time I think it's a defunct school I don't think it's open open anymore Um, and even and even then um, you know while there you're only exposed to to so much but uh, but it was a it was a, a good good learning opportunity for me a good good experience
0: where did your career take you after NC State
1: um, so, so actually, while I was in at NC State, the whole big change actually for me happened over one sentence, and I'll never forget it to this day. So, we had a, a horse that came in that had uh, a laceration of the deep digital flexor tendon, and so me and the the resident met on a this was it came in on a Friday night, and so I met him on a on a Saturday, and we put uh, shoes on there with little extended heels, and then welded it in a bar to make kind of a, a small little fishtail. And from there, again, every resident, you know, on Monday morning when the, the faculty member comes in, they always have rounds. And in that rounds, you know, you always get told, well, this is what you did good. These are the things you can improve on. You know, it's just a time to learn and, and reflect and get feedback. And while we were talking to, to Dr. Redding at that time, you know, he looked at the shoeing and it was like, oh, man, that's, that's great. You know, it looks awesome. Did the job. Um, the only thing that would have made it better was if it was a handmade shoe. And I mean, and he meant nothing by it, just literally to sentence, if you were, you know, again, in that, in that environment, nothing's ever going to be perfect. So there's always a little something. And that's what he said. And for whatever reason, that really bothered the crap out of me. I, at that time, I didn't really, I didn't have the skill set or the ability to make, make shoes. Um, And it, it deeply bothered me. So I, I made it another couple weeks uh, and then I, I arranged a time and, and sat down and met with him and talk to him. I mean, I was working for, for other, other fairs and, and learning those skills and going through certification at the time. Um, but I, I went and asked him, I was like, you know, if this is what I want to do in, in my life, I, I want to work in a, in a hospital like this. Should I go to vet school? Should I go somewhere to work with another fair that does this kind of work all the time? You know, what what input do you have on what I should do? And, and he told me that I needed to, to get out of of there and get get more more experience and that he actually knew a guy um in northern virginia that he'd met uh during his internship while he was up working in the middleburg area and um you know but he did that kind of work and he always had people working with him and so I went home and, and googled this person which who turned out to be Paul goodness and I called Paul and I googled it and they they were actually just starting an internship program so he was bringing in people from around the country to come in and work with his his group fair practice called called forging ahead And uh, from there, so just chatting with him, he invited me up for an interview. So I went that weekend, and then he asked me when I could start. So I went back to NC State and told him I'd gotten another job and um, that I would be leaving in two months. And so then I moved to Northern Virginia to work for Paul and and that group forging ahead. That's what took me to Virginia.
0: That's one of those kind of legendary internship programs too. And and I think a model for how a lot of farriers should consider Operating a practice to bring up the next generation.
1: Yeah, no, a- absolutely. It was a wonderful group practice. It was a, a wonderful opportunity. And again, at the time, you don't. I didn't see the gravity of what I was doing and the impact that it would later have, but it was an awesome practice. There were six farriers working there at at the time and a couple helpers. And then, um, like I said, it started this internship program. So it started with, with me and then they brought in several others, uh, while I was there and then it, it kept going even after, after I left. But that's certainly a big move that opened a lot of doors in my life.
0: And what was that practice like was it mainly trying to just help the sport horses around northern virginia
1: That practice so so the what i really think was one of the most unique things about it that didn't make it insanely successful was the majority of of the group would go around farm to farm and do these really high level performance horses again i mean they were members of the group were shoeing for the us team the canadian team they were shoeing horses for the new zealand team so mostly eventing horses um but they they did a ton of a ton of them and then paul his primary practice was problem solving. So he did do a, a small group of performance horses, um, but his main clientele for him personally was uh, therapeutic shoeing and, and kind of problem solving for, for performance horses. And then whatever cases were presented to, to him from the local vet population and also the veterinarians at the Marion DuPont Scott Equine Medical Center. So not only did you get a big dose or, or heavy exposure to the therapeutic realm, but also a lot of exposure to the performance horse world. And so my life while there, I would spend uh, two days a week working with Paul at the hospital and then I would spend the other days of the week working with other mem- there's members of the team doing performance horses, and, and in all honesty, getting to travel all over the U.S. So with one of the partners, Randy, I would travel with him a lot, and we would go to Wellington and Ocala and New Hampshire and Georgia and South Carolina. We would go all over with these event horses. And so, so it was really unique to be able to do both, and I really enjoyed that aspect.
0: It's interesting. So far, we're, we're just getting into this, but you have this this trajectory of of the type of horses you you were able to work on earlier on and, and, you know, more or less learn how to make mistakes a little more quietly and then to get to these high pressure situations, uh, more demanding farriery of of therapeutic and, and keeping these Sport horses, you know, I think what we often talk about where maybe time off and certain ideas could be getting the horse to rest so it can rehabilitate might be best, but that's not necessarily on the trainer or the the client's timeline. How did that impact
1: you? Well, that, that impacted me a great deal. So obviously when you're presented with a case, I mean, just like if we go right back to that that case with a quarter crack, those things are super easy to fix if the owner is willing to give them time off, time to relax. You know, again, one common approach to those is to pull their shoes, let them be barefoot, let the feet relax, and then stabilize the crack or let the crack grow out. But when you're doing four-star event horses and you're two weeks out from Rolex, you've got to find ways to make them comfortable or worse yet when you're at Rolex and they pop a quarter crack on cross country and then they have to pass the Sunday morning jog, you know, you don't get that opportunity to take the time off and and rest. You have to find ways to not necessarily fix is probably a bad word, but help that horse continue to do its job then and now. And so I think it really made me much more well-rounded for sure. And certainly impacts everyday life now. You know, again, sometimes some of the things we see, it's super easy. You've got all the time in the world to fix it. And sometimes you don't. So it it really puts you in a mindset of oftentimes having to think outside of the box or get creative to do things.
0: Yeah. And I think too, with the way your mind works and what you've talked about taking quarter cracks as an example. Yeah. You can think of different ways to address it or patching or or pulling the shoes, whatever the case may be. But I'm sure like, again, talking about quarter cracks, you're you're probably driven more of what's causing this and how do I address that? How do we try to prevent this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, I guess it's just a different mindset. I think I was just really lucky to get exposed to people who think very similar to me and approach things in in that way. Certainly very lucky.
0: Yeah. And so then your you know, your skill sets improving. Did your forge work really accelerate this time? You were having the skill set develop at NC State with fabrication, but to find these different solutions, what sort of modalities were you getting more into?
1: Yeah. So when I got there, obviously I was lucky while in Raleigh to meet several members of the North Carolina Horseshoe Association like Andy Henderson and, and Jerry Langdon and, and Greg Davis and they would let me work with them and, and come to their shop and make shoes and, and well we, I mean let's be honest, we started off modifying shoes and then um, actually Andy was the first person to ever walk me through how to make a make a horseshoe. And so so I was already doing a, a bit of that, but I just didn't have a fully proficient skill set. And then when I moved to Northern Virginia to work with that group, there were several other younger members of the group like me who enjoyed forging and, and shoemaking. There was a guy there named Zeb Foltz and, and we would spend a lot of time making shoes and practicing in, in Paul's shop. And Paul would be in and out to, to help us, coach us up, do whatever. And then I was getting a good good time to, to practice uh, traditional forge work. And you know we'd take the shoes that we were making and put them on and do things. And then during everyday life while we were seeing cases, you know, we might use some, some of those handmade shoes. We might take shoes, modify them, fabricate, weld, you know, make braces, do all, all kinds of things um, that was kind of a combination of fabricating and, and blacksmithing. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't uncommon for us, you know, to make shoes for one horse. Very next horse, fabricate something. The very next horse, glue something on. Very next horse, put it in boots. You know, where there was just a, a gamut of, of things to, to be exposed to. And so so it was really a time to again hone a lot of a lot of different skills. And then again from there, um, you know, I was still going through through certification through the AFA program. And so I'd convinced Paul um, to go through the, through the certification program as well. And so we were going certifications to, together and I was practicing what seemed to be like day and night. And then I saw Paul make like two shoes. And then we go to a certification to try, for me to try the journeyman for the first time and him to try the journeyman for the first time. And uh, you know, we both pass the written, go to the bar shoe, And I was lucky enough to pass my bar shoe and he wasn't for something. I can't remember what happened, but something happened. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to beat him to it, you know, because I've been practicing making all these shoes. I'm going to beat him to it. And then he actually went the first go and I watched him shoe the horse and he was done in like an hour and a half with him. And I'll never forget running up to him afterwards. And I'm like, dude, what? what the crap? Where did that come from? I know you haven't been practicing. I mean, again, I know he wasn't making shoes. If we made any shoes, it was me that made them and <laughs> put them on. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and he goes, you realize Travis, you know, for 15 years, I had to make everything. It's not the first shoe I ever made. And, and again, that was another one of those, to me, life-changing sentences. So from that, that's from that sentence that's what really made me start to make more and more handmade shoes for, for horses. Cause I, I, I wanted to have that skill set and that efficiency that he did just from muscle memory, just from many, many years of, of doing it. So, so that sent me on a path where I went for a long period of time and, and put more handmade shoes on than machine made shoes. Granted, now it's probably reversed back and I use more machine made shoes now than handmades, But, but, But that, again, that that sentence, and and again, for me, I think it's always funny, these one-line things that I can remember that had such a huge impact on what I did or what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, and I think going back to Paul, that lends credibility to the the theory of of that practice, that time in the forge and making shoes and that developing that muscle memory doesn't necessarily matter what the steps are. It's going to come back and help you with the horse, and he exhibited that on And that certification. Absolutely.
1: No, it was really, really impressive to me.
0: Do any of the cases from that time with Paul stand out to you?
1: Yeah, there were several cases that stood out and still stand out to this day. Like I can remember him plain as day. The first heel avulsion I saw come in, you know, a horse that had um, was out at one of the farms in Percival and kicked a, a rock wall and ripped off the whole the whole lateral quarter. I remember it it coming in and us. Obviously, having to work with the surgery team to treat that, stabilize, support the hoof. I remember that. I remember building a lot of braces. So, we, we built a lot of braces for, for horses that had like degenerative suspensory ligament desmitis, uh, deep digital flexor tendon lacerations, lacerations, the superficial, the deep. Um, we built a lot of, of braces like that to, to support the limb. And then those stand out. And then there were a lot of laminitis cases that were presented, um, to the hospital. And many of them, like, I, I clearly remember the very first horse we did, a, or I was a part of the team that did a deep digital flexor tenotomy and a derotation shoeing. Those stick out. And then some of the heartbreaking ones stick out. So the horses that were, were there for in the hospital for many, many months and didn't make it, um, those, those stick out in, in your mind. And, and certainly those cases are, are quite different than trying to help their performance horse. You know, there's a big mind shift change when you're, you're thinking of you're helping a team to go out and win versus you're just trying to help a horse make it to tomorrow. Um, those are two, two very different, different cases. And then in the performance uh, horses, you know, I remember remember cases of watching, being at Rolex and watching Randy and and Steve Peatman work together to come up with with solutions for some of the horses to make sure that they would be able to pass a jog on on Sunday morning and and getting to be be there and be a part of of those cases. Those are certainly things I'll I'll never never forget. And then, and again, some of the the really just cool horses that you're exposed to. So, so getting to to work on Teddy O'Connor before he passed away was awesome. You know, knowing some of these horses like Harbor Pilot now, who's going off and winning, knowing him as a foal on Stone Hall's farm. Those, so some of those cases always always stick out. I was just super lucky to be there and get to work for, for those guys and, and get to be a part of that team.
0: Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before, but the cost of therapeutic shoeing for, for those those cases that could go one way or the other and, and not cost in the sense of the materials cost this much and this is what we're going to charge the owner, but it can be physically and mentally draining for you and I'm sure emotionally too. And how, how do you balance that?
1: Yeah. I I think it's, it's quite, quite difficult. And now to today, I mean, as a, as a helper uh, or a farrier apprentice or whatever you want to term, term my role back then, I'll admit, I knew some of those cases were, were draining and bothersome to people, but I guess I didn't fully understand the magnitude until I came here and and being here and being more of a, a key player in the, in the team, you know, you get to see the toll that some of those cases can take on the faculty, the, the technicians, the, the students, how some, sometimes some of those cases divide uh, the hospital, you know, and some, some people think it's time to quit and some people, some people don't. And ultimately, it's up to the, to the owner and the horse. So each owner has a different um, definition of quality of life. Um, for sure and and so so for for me, I just try to stay positive through it all, but I have this weird, unique thing, I guess about me so growing up in that life with the with the trail guide service, horses came and went all the time. We would keep probably the same core group of maybe ten horses that i could I could remember were there from the time I was a little kid till the time I went off to college. But outside of those 10 it was just a revolving door of of horses so so even as a kid i I learned not to get too attached to them so so obviously I like horses, love horses obviously love love the job but but I think even as a kid it was ingrained in me to to keep them kind of at arm's length but certain horses just just get to you. Um, you know, and so certain ones, you know, that are in the hospital for six, eight, 10 months and you see them every day, you can't help, but, but get attached to them. And, and in those cases, they do take a toll on, on all the people that work on them. There's, there's no doubt about it when they go. So that part's hard. And, and that's one of the things that I try to prepare everyone for if they want to get into this type of realm or, or this type of, uh, specialization in the fare industry it's hard. I mean, if you look around and you've got, you know, four or five difficult laminitis cases in the hospital that you're not sure are going to make it, that's that's mentally draining uh, for sure. It's a lot different than just going out and showing, you know, ten sound horses. So everybody sometimes I think gets infatuated with the idea of this therapeutic corrective uh, work and and being able to do it and kind of want to do it, but there is that, you know, harsh reality that a lot of horses you work on don't make it very long. Or, or again, a lot of the horses that I see, they come in and, you know, they've got big problems or it's the, you know, there's a lot of the horses I work on that, you know, I'm lucky to, to be able to see them for two or three years and then, they, they pass on where a lot of fairs they, you know, they get to watch horses grow from a foal all the way up and get to, to work on the same horse for 10, 15, 20 years. And, and so it's a little, little different uh, and just something you have to have to think about.
0: Back then you you had somewhat of a clinical setting. You're in the clinical setting now and in working with veterinarians, maybe more of the, the dialogue with the owner goes through them. But, you know, in cases where you have more of that, direct interaction one on one with the owner and there's a therapeutic element and we're not just talking life or death it might be is this horse going to uh, be able to to return to some level of what its normal sea of performances how do you how do you recommend managing the client's expectations
1: well i think that 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 part's hard um i do think you have to be honest very open and honest with clients and and cases and and ultimately really honest with yourself so i think you know i'm similar to a lot of fairs and you really want to jump in and help do anything like you really want to do whatever you can to help the horse feel comfortable get better um but you'll find or at least I find a lot of clients uh, think of horses more like like a car or something they they think you know if they switch fares and get these new shoes that that's just going to fix it and, and save the horse but but oftentimes that's not the case and so there are those certain certain group of owners that are just looking for a miracle and right or wrong, oftentimes the farrier is one of the people they're looking to, to to save their horse. And those clients, I think, are really hard to manage their expectations. But outside of that group, I think uh, approaching owners with just a nice, calm demeanor, and then a logical, common sense approach to their to their horse, is is enough to again kind of curb or, or curtail their expectations to to make sure that it fits. Um, that particular horse in that particular case, um, but I will admit, obviously, a lot of a lot of that that conversation. Uh, I'm very very lucky again to to work as a part of a vet fair team, and oftentimes uh, that conversation is is not done with me out on on an island. So it's usually a, a sit down conversation between the owner, myself, and whatever veterinarian is seeing the case. That makes it a lot easier when it's a whole team approaching it.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure there's a deep conversation that that you and the the veterinarian have absent of the owner before you go into that together.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think one of the, uh, the keys to having a successful vet farrier team is that when the vet fair team goes in front of the owner, it is very much a team approach. So I'm very lucky. The person I work with the most here, Dr. Pleasant, I'm not going to say we always agree. I mean, it's, we challenge each other. We question things, always trying to, to look to the best option or improving ourselves or improving what we can do for the horse. And sometimes that that does lead to what I call constructive conflict. You know, at some point we have to decide, all right, we're going to do it my way or his way. And either way, whoever wins that argument and convinces the other one, all right, well, we're going to try it. When we go in front of the owner, none of that ever happens. It's like that never, never happened. We walk into there and it's, we're very much a, a team. And this is, this is our idea. This is what we're going to try. You know, there's, there's no blaming. There's no, well, hey, he wants me to do this, but I want to do this. None of that. When you go in front of the owner, you have to be a team. And I and I think that should be the case on anything with the, the vet farrier team. I mean, again, I have no problem having – open, honest discussions that again, I mean, can include arguing and, and conflict. I mean that, that leads to, to ideas and progress oftentimes behind closed doors. So one on one. But anytime you're in front of the owner, I don't I don't think it's appropriate for the vet or the fairy to undermine undermine the other. And and sometimes it happens still out there in the world. But I really think that's one of the big keys to healthy, good, functioning vet farrier team is to be willing to discuss, but anytime in front of the owner, present a group view. This is our approach. This is is our idea. This is what we want to try.
0: So what's typically that tipping point in the uh, constructive conflict? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I'd say for for Pleasant and I, it's, it's whoever can, can convince the other one that their way is the right way, you know. So so again, I mean, whoever can come up with the most information or the most examples or the best justification. And, and maybe somebody just gets hungry and wants to give up, you know, but it, I'd say, I mean, again, after working with the same person for every day for 10 years, we have a pretty good idea of, of what we're going to do in, in any case, but still there's, he won't let me just rattle off anything without justification and, and my hold him to the same standard. You just... Don't get to say whatever without having evidence or at least a thought process and a theory behind it.
0: And, and for those who are listening, we're, we're talking about Dr. Scott Pleasant, a Hall of Fame veterinarian. And I guess let's use that as the transition of, of the work you two are doing and how you ended up at, at Virginia Tech.
1: Yeah, well, so actually I I wound up here because... Again, just lucky because I was working for for Paul there and and I alluded to the fact that he worked at, at that time at least two days a week at the Marion DuPont Scott Equine Medical Center which is a satellite hospital to where I work now. So so most people think I work at Virginia Tech because that is where I work. That's we're on Virginia Tech's campus, but our college here is is unique. So it's a, a a collaborative effort between the University of Maryland and Virginia Tech. So that's why we have the funny name, Virginia, Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. It's not the College of Veterinary Medicine at Virginia Tech. So it's a partnership between the two. And so there are many different locations for the campus, so there's a place in Roanoke, there's the Equine Hospital in Leesburg, there's the Research Center at the University of Maryland, so it's a, a multi-location or multi-campus college, and so working with Paul at, at that hospital certainly, I would say, gave me a leg up, certainly uh, opened a door for an opportunity, and so that's how I found out that the job existed. I knew, doc, again, Dr. Pleasant's been here for for many, many years. Um, and so him and the local fairs here in, in Blacksburg were were working together they were developing a, a podiatry caseload and and again podiatry or ferry has always been an interest of of Dr. Pleasants. and there was a department head uh, that came to us from. Australia named Dr. David Hodgson and he was a big supporter of the initiative to start a podiatry program. So even in the late 2000s, you know, 2007, eight, nine, they were laying the groundwork to eventually create this farrier podiatry service and hire a farrier. And so they did in 2009, um, posted a job and I found out about it by working at the satellite hospital. And so, so I applied but I have no no doubt in my mind that where I was, who I was working with, the contacts that I already made certainly helped open the the door for me to at least get an interview, and and ultimately lucky enough to get the position. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully that answers the question.
0: Yeah. Well, how did that interview yeah. go with Pleasant?
1: Yeah. Oh the the interview. Um. I mean, again, I I thought went went really well. I was lucky enough to meet him at one of the NEAP events up in. It's back when they had it at the Foxwoods up in Connecticut, so luckily he was he was presenting there, and I was an attendee there, so I got to meet him before I ever interviewed. So I at least met him once. but I'll admit it was a rigorous interview. It was a couple day preparation, so you know, I came down and he and I went to dinner together, and then the next day, you know, they, they kind of grill you. They put you in front of all these small committees. And so, you know, I met with, you know, the equine field service group. I met with the large animal surgeons. I met with the large animal techs. I met with the advancement people or, or the hospital administrators. Um, I met one-on-one with Pleasant that day. I met with a fairy that did a lot of work here at the time, but then eventually trans. Transition to a job with environmental health and safety on campus, um, just met with a lot of people, get asked a lot of questions, have to talk and, and defend yourself. I had to give a presentation that was open to the entire faculty and, and staff of the hospital, so that was a little unnerving, I won't lie, to have to stand up in front of all those those individuals and, and prepare a presentation. So it, I'll admit, in the moment, you think, you know, it's it's going well, but you don't really know um, until till the end. So I left here after after the interview without knowing if I had gotten the job or not. But minimum, I I got the experience to to meet new people um, and certainly meet all the the faculty members that were were here at the time. I'll admit, that there's it's funny the things you you remember the most, but the probably the most clear thing I remember the whole interview is. After we had dinner on the first night I got to campus, he brought me back to school to tour it while it was kind of empty at night. And I remember the first door we opened to go in the back of the barn, uh, we were greeted by a camel's head. (laughs) There was just a giant camel in the back of the barn and he could – in a horse stall. So naturally, he's taller and he could look over and look down. And and I just – I mean, at that time, I just thought that was the coolest thing to – go into a horse barn and then see a camel there. So, so that, <laughs> it's funny, but that's probably the thing I remember most clearly about, <laughs> about the interview.
0: Have you had it, you talked about those one-liners that have shaped your career. Have you ever got any of those one-liners from Pleasant?
1: I don't know about, you know, just one-line things. I do think, you know, obviously a, a ton of things that he has done And, and who he is, has certainly had a, had a big impact on me. Um, and when, you know, the, the most simplest things, uh, again, for him are, you know, no matter what you say to him, you know, Hey, pleasant, I really think this horse needs a hard bar. Well, his very next question is okay. Why? And so, so it's always going that next step of, of how and why. And I would say that's definitely one of the things that has certainly rubbed off on, on me and, and been passed, passed along to me is to always have a reason for what doing what you do, no matter what it is from applying a shoe to, I'll admit that's, that's rubbed off on many other aspects of my life. So not that Pleasant, you know, is going to coach me through making a shoe, but his approach of why does translate into making a shoe. So, so for me, every time, you know, I do something, I think, why is that a necessary step? Could I alter, alter that? Um, So I'd say that, that mindset definitely has rubbed off on me.
0: Can you talk about what your role is at the uh, hospital and how that's changed over the years and, and into that discuss about the program that you, you and Dr. Pleasant have developed
1: um yeah so so obviously you know i've well i've been here almost 10 years now um so there's been a lot of a lot of growth and and change so it's the whole program and and my role started out here as uh, a farrier so i was hired as a staff member and it was really just pleasant myself and we had a ferry truck and we would you know really do anything at any time so i mean we would go out to farms and trim donkeys that needed to be done that You know, nobody else wanted to do. We would go to other vet practices and help them with cases. We would do anything to to build ourselves a a reputation and a and a caseload. And so we slowly, slowly grew and grew and grew um, to a to you know a really. Well-defined caseload, and 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 eventually transition to where um, I really only see cases here at the hospital. Um, I still travel out to obviously the Virginia Tech farms and and a couple of select clients of the of the hospital, but by far and away the majority of what I do now um, is here at the hospital in the ferry Shop. So you know, through the uh, benefactors to the, to the college and support from the college, we were able to remodel a building into a farrier shop. But from beyond the clinical work, we've pretty early on brainstormed and developed a course called equine podiatry for third year veterinary students. So we started a three credit elective course uh, for them um, that is all on equine podiatry, which is really a lot of farrier stuff. So farrier science, farrier skills, uh, farrier theory. And then obviously going into all the various disease pathologies that affect the distal limb. So that's how I kind of moved into to teaching here at, uh, at the university. So I transitioned from a staff member to a administrative and professional faculty member with a title of lecturer. So with that course, and simultaneously while we developed that course, I, as soon as we got busy enough with a caseload, wanted to mimic what Paul Goodness and, and their group at at forging ahead had. So I store, or not I, but we started a, a farrier internship program, um, Back in 2012, we got our first intern, um, and then that grew. That was training training an intern, so we would get an already accomplished farrier in and then just really try to focus or hone their skills in the, the therapeutic realm and expose them to the, the veterinarian curriculum uh, here. Um, so they would get to go watch uh, – or audit courses they would uh, actively participate in the podiatry course both as a student and an instructor and then that slowly we did that for i don't know maybe five years and then from there we transitioned and started something called the advanced fair certificate training program. And that, that's really, uh, the design it's, it's very similar to the internship program, but it would allow for more than one person or one participant a year. So it's a, uh, a group effort between the college and the Virginia Tech continuing professional education group to allow again, more, more fairies to come here and, and train. And then, again, luckily, we kept growing here, and I would teach more and more in both that that course, but also starting to lecture and, and be an instructor in several other courses within the veterinary curriculum and the animal and poultry science undergraduate curriculum. And so... God, I don't know, two, three years ago now, um, the department head at, at the time uh, moved me into uh, a troop teaching faculty role. Um, so I became an assistant professor of, of practice within the Department of Large Animal Clinical Sciences, um, which again, for our profession, sure, it's a nice you know thing for, for me, makes you makes you feel good it's a great uh, recognition of of my efforts here but i think luckily it's a it's a bigger feather in the cap of the entire fair profession so i think it's a wonderful thing that uh, uh, not only a college but also a college and university uh, support a farrier as a as a faculty member and and again have allowed me to to submit my P T document or or C V if you will, um, to a to a committee to be promoted to now an associate professor. So I think that's a, a great thing for for again our profession to to have that. And I know Steve Krauss is is very similar at, at Cornell. He is he's gone up for promotion and got promoted to senior lecturer and and those things you know, sure, they're great individual accomplishments, but those I think are, are big things for our entire profession that that we as a whole can can hang our hats on.
0: Yeah, and I think you, you mentioned Steve Kraus and some of the other colleges are over the last ten years are taking uh, more of an approach of integrating the farrier more. And I, I think what you're doing and what a few of the other universities are doing has really have a long-term impact on the vet-farrier relationship improving that exposure because we often talk about how little the vet student gets on the horse's foot but uh, especially those who are particularly interested in the exposure they have to you and your shop the exposure they have to steve and his shop and several other farriers.
1: yeah i i think it's it's tremendous and again my hope is you know here Uh, integrating both, you know, vet students and, and fair students, if you will, you know, the fairs that are here learning and, and training by integrating them together. I mean, they, they know no different than to work together. I mean, we, we drop them in those, those courses together and, and it, it sounds you know, maybe kind of dumb, but they, they hang out with each other. They learn from each other. They, they go to the bar and drink beer together. They go to sporting events together. Like they, they become friends while they're, they're learning. So there's, there's no real hierarchy. There's no, uh, there's no ego in the room. There's no, no conflict. I mean, they, they kind of grow up, if you will, learning with and from each other, which is, you know, a foundational principle to interdisciplinary learning. Um, or interprofessional learning and having the ability to learn from and with with each other and that naturally will will lend itself to to working better or more hand in hand when they leave and and again having a a model here that is is presented to them I mean they're they're just a part of everyday life here so they see you know the interactions between you know Dr. Pleasant myself they see us argue. They see us problem solve. They see us work together. They see how we talk or present ourselves to a client. They see all those things. And I, I think it goes a long way to helping with the vet fair profession. And by having this part of the college to, to go in and teach with those students has a huge, huge impact. And and like you said, other colleges are, are doing the same thing. So so again, the works of Steve Krauss and Steve Schmersheim and Doug Russo and Shane Westman and Jason Mackey and Pat Riley. I mean, again, the list goes on and on but we all you know work really really hard to to help not only the horses in our care but also to help foster that vet fair relationship and i know it's still uh difficult in some places and between some vets and and some fairs but but again my my hope is that as the generations move forward all the efforts and the work that all the the fairs or all the different universities are putting in now will have an impact to where eventually you know there's you don't ever go anywhere and have to hear a talk on fostering the vet Fair team or how to work together as a relationship hopefully we just get to a point where it just is a great symbiotic relationship because again in my mind there's i see no reason why it's not a perfect partnership and again not saying you have to agree or get along all all the time but but there's no reason why we can't be a good team and, and work together and, and support each other because yeah. at the end of the day both of us, the vet, the farrier, the trainer, the massage therapist, the chiropractor, everybody just wants to help the horse. That's it.
0: Yeah.
1: It's that, it's that simple. So, you know, again, if you're just if we're just good people and work together as, as a team and you just be a good teammate, it, it shouldn't be a problem.
0: So what are the reputations you have is, you know, knowledgeable, of course, but also very giving back to the industry on, and- as a lecturer seen you at many clinics throughout the years examiner tester throughout the years but now you're currently serving as the american barriers association president mm-hmm. uh, what's your goal with with taking the afa forward and your your time left in your presidency
1: um my my goal with with you know with a afa is um certainly a lot of a lot of the goals um I set out with with my presence. He have have been achieved, um, but I I think the next next big step um, has been you know the identification of our new executive director. So uh, Miss Miss Daniels was with us for five years and moved away into semi retirement or move on to take a well well deserved break. Um, but she did a lot of really great things for for us as an organization. But there's no doubt um, that having you know, identified and selected the new executive director during, during my term. Um, So we as a board the executive committee, the board of directors selected that individual who turned out to be Martha Jones. There's no doubt that will leave a lasting impact on the, on the AFA. So I, I feel very fortunate to have been the president during, during that time and be allowed to, to give thoughts and input and directive into selecting that person because she will have a, have a big impact on our next four, five, ten years of the association, to to say the least. Um, but some of the goals that I still have for the association are again looking outside, just the the fair profession. So anything we can do to expose the the AFA and the fair profession to the outside world, the horse owning community, and even beyond, um, is is certainly a goal of of mine or really a goal goal of ours the the whole afa but moving on again there's i think a lot of great things are happening in the afa right now i think the last several conventions have been wonderful um i think it's great to to see again the goal is to always grow the membership um and again i think we're on a trajectory i see I just reviewed the numbers yesterday so our membership is growing and growing growing over the last six months with uh, no decline Um, that's a wonderful sign I think it's a, a wonderful sign to to see some of the, the fairs from the past or who were past active members in the AFA and moved away for whatever reason. I think it's awesome to see a lot of them coming back. So that's still a goal of mine is to continue to foster, foster those relationships, especially moving towards the 50th anniversary of the AFA convention uh, in Albuquerque. It would be awesome if all the founding members that are still around would be there. It'd be awesome to have all the past presidents, all the past board members, all the past committee chairs, all there to to show their support to the AFA and and you know share stories and and talk about the AFA itself. Again, I mean it's easy sometimes to focus on on the negatives or or criticisms that you may hear about any of the associations, but in reality, the AFA has done tremendous things uh, for the entire fair profession. And certainly has had a huge impact on me individually. And and I know I'm not the only one. The AFA has has done a lot for for many, many, many farriers in the in the US.
0: Absolutely. Another one of your achievements. You're a, a handful of farriers in the United States to to have a fellowship in the Worshipful Company of uh, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, sure. So I mean that's that's perfect for as you talk about. Some of the benefits to AFA are well. First and foremost, that's how I that's what opened the door for for us American ferries to take those exams uh, from the Warsaw company. If it wasn't for the AFA certification and the the reciprocity agreement between the American Fairs Association and the Worshipful Company of Affairs, then we would have never had the opportunity for those higher level exams offered by the the Worshipful Company, like the associate exam and, and ultimately the the fellowship exam. Um, but that again is is a wonderful test that I was lucky to to take part in. Um, I would encourage more and more fairs in the US to to, to take it, it's certainly not an unattainable goal. I think it's a wonderful thing that that test requires farriers to delve into the realm of research. So as one of the, the primary staples of that, that test are to, to perform, uh, a re- it's thesis based, so to perform a research project and then write a thesis on it. Um, that's, that's step one. And then from there, the actual practical part of the, the test is, is awesome. So you submit again, a, a shoe board. So you get to take shoes that you make and use in your practice and, and go over there and, and get asked questions. You have to essentially defend them, explain what they are, why you'd put it on the benefits to it, the negatives, that type of thing. Um, and then the practical part of the, the test is, is fantastic. So you're, you're given a, a case scenario. So you're presented with a, a, a veterinarian and a case and that person, uh, will give you a signalman, a history kind of lay the, lay the foundation part of the physical exam findings and then essentially tell you a problem. So for example, the horse might have suspensory ligament desmitis. And then you have to come up with a plan of how your shoeing or your trimming and shoeing is going to help that horse, explain it to that examiner, defend it, talk about other possible alternatives, but in essence come up with a plan and then you go carry out the plan and then you get assessed or, or scored on it by the, the, the panel, which is, consists of two farriers and a, and a vet. And I, I just I think that's a wonderful, wonderful exam and a lot of fun. Like you really feel like you're, you're tested on you. You're, you're really, you're really getting to come up with solutions. So they don't tell you what the research project is. You get to totally create that. And and now many of the FW theses are posted online now and you can get, you can go read them and they're all over the gamut. From people looking at hoof capsule morphology to morphology of lamellar interface to uh, the effects of frog and sole support, the effects of heart bar, you know, looking at doming feet, how they're trimmed, any number of of things. So you really get to pick an idea or a topic that that interests you, and you get to conduct conduct a project and get assessed on it. And then even the practical component, it's, it's unlike all the other exams where you're told, you know, you put on this shoe, you perimeter fit it, you fit it with this kind of heel expansion, you make this bar shoe and put it on, you make this medial lift shoe and put it on. You're, you're just given a problem and you have to come up with solutions. You come up with your own plan and then you carry it out. And I, I just think that's awesome to, to be assessed in that, that manner. Yeah.
0: You know, uh, a topic I've I've talked recently with a few farriers about is is burnout. And I think one of those things, the triggers for it can be different for everyone. Sometimes it's your workload. You're in a very high-pressure environment, uh, you know, I'm sure a very sizable workload, and then you add on your responsibilities of, of running the largest farrier association in the United States. How, how do you avoid it?
1: um avoid avoid burnout so i'll admit i i have a awesome a great support system um so again the the college has allowed me to go out and and do a lot of those outreach efforts so they've afforded me the opportunity and the time to go out and give clinics go to to different places meet new people they've supported me in taking these exams they've given me the time to to study they've given me the people to help me me prepare for for those exams um so just a lot of support from from that regard and then again you know avoiding burnout by it's contagious with the, the vet students. They're, they come in and they rotate year after year and they're always enthusiastic, they always want to learn, they're, they're super, super happy. Um, so that's contagious, it, it inevitably rubs off on you. If you know they're, they're super excited to see a foal get trimmed. Like it's easy to think it sucks to have to go trim 12 foals out in a field with no shade in 100 degree weather and it, I won't lie, it does, but by having a couple other people there, you know, looking at you, asking you questions, talking about it, they're, they're excited to be a part of it. That's, that's contagious. That, that certainly helps. Um, again, I've, I'm very lucky. I've got a very understanding wife who's a, who's an equine veterinarian and, and certainly supports me doing all these, these activities, um, going places certainly opens our home up. I'd say, Twenty farriers stay at our house throughout the year at any given time, and and that that helps the the people coming in and out, um, you know, going to to contests. So competing at the the local contests and and competing at the the classics certainly is contagious. It you can't go to one of those events and not, in my opinion, I don't think you can go to any of those and not get. Jacked up and excited to go back to work on Monday and try whatever little thing you just saw somebody somebody do. Um, so, so the ways I've avoided burnout again are by doing a lot. So you just go 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 go. So you don't even have time to think about what life might be like if I didn't do all of these things, and uh, and just surround myself with uh, good positive people who are excited to, to be a part of this profession and, and the, the professions that are, are close to it.
0: Maybe one of the keys to managing a, a good vet ferry relationship or understanding how to operate peacefully and it is to marry one.
1: Uh, <laughs> That's one, way to, one <laughs> way to do it or that might lead to more conflict. Too. Right,
0: right. But I, I think, you know, I think the big takeaway there is avoiding isolation.
1: Absolutely. No, Craig, Craig Trenka, I think is the person I, I heard say it that, you know, the biggest disease that affects the fair industry is, is not alcoholism or substance abuse or, or anything like that. It is isolation. There's, there's no doubt if you, if you're just by yourself all the time trimming and shoeing horses and dealing with crazy clients, it's a brutal life. Getting out and being a part of the associations and, and, and again, this, this probably makes me sound old, but, but being, Present physically around other fairs, I think, is a great, great thing. Like I, the social media, undoubtedly, sure does open a lot of a lot of doors and and avenues for for people to engage in both constructive and and unfortunately on social media a lot of destructive type ways. But but face to face with with other fairs and and again learning with and from each other. I mean it it's just contagious. It's it's there's I don't think there's any better way to to stay positive and enthusiastic in this world. I mean, even even if you're just meeting another fair for lunch and you just do nothing but complain about the flies and the, the drought and all the cracks and the lost shoes that we have right now, it just makes you feel better to know that somebody else is suffering just like you are, you know. But but like i said i mean you go to a contest or certification and any of those things man it's it's just contagious you just want to go and do better all the time and 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 it seems like at those events there's always this young group of farriers that they're so excited to to do anything they're they're super excited to to learn how to clip a shoe like the some of the things that we take for for granted or think are so simple that their their level of excitement is is awesome, and there's there's no doubt that that limits burn burnout for sure. Being being together, we need to we need to be together, and I I think we as fairs need to spend more time both working together. So I would encourage everybody to work as a team with a with an apprentice uh, or a master or whichever part of that fence you you lie on just work with another fair as often as you can and and just get out and go to events whether it's a clinic or a contest or certification or or whatever just go
0: I think that's the great great way to end this is yeah. the cautionary tale for is uh, there's a solution that fits every price point just don't go at it alone.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: All right, thanks for your time, Travis. Great. Thank you, Jeremy. I'd like to thank Travis for joining us for this episode. I'd also like to thank HorseLink for sponsoring it. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast. And until then, thank you for listening.